You're listening to Nightmare on Film Street. The current time is 6.66. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife. But it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on Nightmare Time. So, let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to another episode of Nightmare on Film Street. Do we usually say it like that? It sounded fine. Okay, I'm John. I'm Kim. And we're here today on another episode of Nightmare (laughs) on Film Street. My entire rhythm's been thrown off. How are you doing? It feels like we're stuck in one of those hallways that just keeps stretching out. Yeah. You know, we're zooming in and pulling out at the same time, but Mm -hmm. that's what quarantine is like. Oh, yeah. Like that scene in Jaws. Yeah, or like that scene in... um, Mario World from what? N64 where huh? he's going up that stairwell and it just gets longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and you were there and you were there and you were there. <laughs> or Poltergeist. I think that's what I was thinking of initially. Yes, Poltergeist has yeah. that stretchy hallway. I never get tired of that fucking scene. It's, oh, I thought you meant that hallway stunt. It's a good stunt. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like that moment. So we're here today to talk about two true crimey horror movies based on a true story. We are talking about Zodiac from... 2007. And The Town That Dreaded Sundown from... 1976. That was good. Thanks. (laughs) I've been practicing it. (laughs) All month long. I gotta say, editing... In front of the mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Eyes closed, but in front of the mirror. (laughs) So, uh, editing this week's episode, I gotta say, we spend a lot of time talking about how great the voiceover work is in The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and I'm really fighting the urge not to talk about it right now. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) It's really, 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 really good. But yes, of course, in continuation of our Cops and Killers Month here at Nightmare on Film Street, we're closing out with two true crime stories, uh, two unsolved. Unsolved. True crime stories. Which I learn in this episode. (laughs) If it's been a little while, um, I'm sure you're probably, if you're a true crime fan, I'm sure you're familiar with the Zodiac Killer. Uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown fictionalizes the, I don't want to say exploits, the crimes, the horrible crimes of the Texarkana Phantom from the mid-40s. There's a great article from Tyler Liston at nofspodcast.com for his Behind the Screams column. And if you're true crime obsessed and looking for something to read right now because you've got nothing but fucking time... I would highly encourage you to check out his Behind the Screams column. It's very, very, very good. Yeah, so uh, I guess we're already sort of getting into it. Uh, Normally in the beginning of the podcast, if you're new, we do a What's Keeping You Creepy segment. Obviously, it's quarantine time, so um, we're struggling to be motivated to be creepy. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. Um, I have been reading through Grady Hendrix's Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, a title that I'm always having trouble saying, but it is so, so good. If if you're familiar with Grady Hendrix, you probably already know his his unique humorous style. And there's just, the characters in this book are so good. And they're just late 80s, early 90s Southern housewives that have started a book club reading true crime. So it fits perfectly into what we're talking about today. 
Uh, and it has been just a, a small moment of joy each day when I pick up my tablet to read a few pages of that. Yeah, we've also been sneaking in um, some B-movies from Amazon Prime. We recently uh, renewed our Amazon Prime subscription because there was a show I really wanted to watch. I don't want to get into it, but it was only available in French after we'd already signed up for Amazon Prime. Do you remember the title of it? Yeah, it's called In the Flesh. Don't want to get into it. Here's all the details. Thank you. <laughs> um, but if you know where I can see, legally, see Into the Flesh, the BBC show, I think it's from like 2013, please let me know because everybody told me on Twitter it was on Amazon Prime and I was like, sweet, amazing, I got Prime. It's only the dubbed French version for some reason. I'm sorry, I said I wasn't going to talk about this at all. That's okay. But I'm very upset. Now that we have Prime, we've been watching some really cheesy movies that we found on there, like Late Night, Throwing It On. Uh, it's been a blast. What was the last one we watched? The Student Ghost or whatever? So, uh, yeah, we watched School Spirit. School Spirit. I took all the puns out of that title. (laughs) It is awful. You gotta see it. It's so, (laughs) so bad. It's like every dumb 80s sex romp that you've seen where, like, the college kids trying to trying to seduce, like, trick girls into sleeping with them. Uh, and but nobody knows he's dead because he's not really a ghost at all. It's like the, the premise of this movie, it, the setup is so great, but they completely lose it. It's so weird. He doesn't have a condom, so he's got to run over to the, the corner store to get one. But on his way back, he dies in a car accident and comes back as a ghost because his unfinished business is that he didn't get to sleep with the sorority girls. Oh, boy. But he's not a ghost. Like, he's <laughs> he's just brain dead. He's got ghost powers. Like, he can, like, wish himself invisible whenever he wants. But he, like, occupies a fleshy space in the world. Yeah. Like, he, he goes to school. <laughs> People see him. He interacts with them. There's, there, it does, I don't know why he's a ghost. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. After that, we paired it, for some reason, with New Zealand's Death Warmed Up. Uh, it definitely just sort of a weird goofy splatter zombie movie like i would definitely recommend it to fans of peter jackson's early stuff like dead alive but it's not quite like that at all like like all australian cinema these guys are super tough and pretty um and just put themselves in a lot of danger also gets surprisingly dark did you just say tough and pretty did you not watch the movie I may have fell fallen asleep. That's fine. Yeah, they they are tough and pretty. Like they look like um, they look like Mel Gibson in the original Road Warrior. Tough and pretty. Tough and pretty. You know, for always calling me out for naming out the beefcakes on this show, I think we should also have the so Kim's section is beefcakes, John's is tough, tough and pretty. Tough and pretty. Tough and pretty with John DeHun. <laughs> the flannel wearing bearded man's review. Tough and pretty. <laughs> On a side note, we uh, launched a new side podcast that exists within the regular Nightmare on Film Street stream. It is called Nightmare Alley. It is a interview-style podcast that we've added to our regularly scheduled head-to-heads that we do here. Last week, we put in an episode with Kaola Raisla, director of Fangoria's most recent film, Porno. Uh, it's an absolutely hilarious horror comedy um, that, you know, like, I, I highly encourage you to watch it with your friends on Zoom. Uh, if, if you can, like, get everybody together. Everybody puts it on at the exact same time or wears headphones so you don't have a bunch of audio bleeding through. It is absolutely hysterical and just and also has some incredible practical gore effects. So it's perfect for a horror fan looking for something to watch at home right now. And it's currently available on digital VOD uh, with a physical release coming later this year in the summer. But you can check out the Nightmare Alley podcast within the regular Nightmare on Film Street feed. So wherever you're grabbing this one, it will be in the regular episode guide. We have a few more fun interviews scheduled and we'll be dropping those in the intermittent weeks between the regular Nightmare on Film Street episodes. We have some really fun interviews set up. 
and we can't wait to do even more Nightmare on Film Street. I'm super pumped. Yeah, this uh, this Friday, we're, of course, going to be hosting another quarantine stream and scream Netflix party with all of our fellow fiends at Patreon. Uh, we're bringing it back a little earlier in the evening as well. So if you're overseas or interested in a different time zone that doesn't work out, we're going to be doing it at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just enough time to uh, to watch a movie with us, maybe have a little pregame drink before Joe Bob comes on and shutter. Yeah, season two of Joe Bob. The last drive-in starts this week. I'm really excited. I'm so excited. I like any excuse to stay up late because staying up late is the new staying up at a regular time. And honestly, these live chats and live tweets and everything have been keeping me sane. Mm-hmm. It's the only like social interaction we have now and the um, like the PlayStation streams we've been doing. Honestly, it's been so much fun to like hang out with people in whatever weird way this quarantine has us hanging out. I, it's the highlight of my week for sure. Absolutely. Big, big thank you to everybody that has joined us on all of those live streams because it is keeping us sane. Without it, I'm sure I would just be a puddle of doom and gloom. But before we we do anything else, I do want to take a moment to let everybody know that we are here today, not just to talk about two great horror movies, but I also want to warn you about another menace that's been lurking in the shadows. (gasps) The podcast Phantom. Dun, dun. As he's known in the tabloids, he um, he could be lurking near you right now. He could be just a headphone away. Uh, All that mirror work has been really doing <laughs> great things for you, John. <laughs> it could be a citizen in your local town lining up for groceries at six o'clock in the morning, just like you. They they have multiple aliases. Uh, they go by Ella D, Meg B, Stephen S, Tommy, Ryan L, Kyle P. Athena S. And also, it says here, Kurt, the gonna be killing you soon, Lewis. That's a very bad alias. It gives everything away. To make matters worse, I've been told these are real names of actual people. Good citizens who support podcasts like Nightmare on Film Street. Um, So, you know, unfortunately, there happens to be a killer out there who's taken your name. And I really do apologize. I don't know where the information leak came from, but we're looking to fix it behind the scenes as quick as possible. Uh, but until further notice, know that there is a fake killer out there using your name. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for supporting Nightmare on Film Street. Obviously, all those names that John just weirdly put out are our newest patrons. So thank you guys so much. If you want to support Nightmare on Film Street, if you want to join those Friday night live streams, you can head to patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. I really do think this quarantine's getting to me. <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. <laughs> My Twitter drafts folder is so big right now because Same. I keep writing things and going, oh no, this is dumb. Oh no. This is just strange. No good. No one's going to get Because this. everything we do right now is boring. And so you're like, how do I make yeah. a tweet out of this? And it's just like, the only things that pass the filter are the dog. So <laughs> all I do now is tweet about the fucking dog. <laughs> Or just, hey, look what I'm watching right now. Yeah, it's look what I'm watching and look at my dog. That's it. That's all I've got. That's to be perfect, my material right now. The dog is mostly what we're watching right now. <laughs> I talk to the dog more now than I ever have. And I think it's just like I'm begging her. Just be like, hey, can you please just learn English so we can hang out? <laughs> <laughs> be my friend. <laughs> Oh, you know, regardless, I, um, I'm i very excited to see all of you in person whenever we can. I can't wait to get back outside. Like, I'm sure you also can't wait to get back outside, but it's just what we got to do right now. Yeah, so uh, enjoy this episode. It's, I don't know, you edited it. Are we, like, super 
optimistic in it or are we oh really... totally we okay. make plans about going to every drive-in in texas this summer which Aww. is probably not happening yeah so obviously we recorded this again before the lockout because we were supposed to be on the road yep uh at this point in time and we were gonna be you know doing fun things like going to film festivals but you know here we are at home trying to make do so enjoy this episode based on a true story kicking off this week's episode we're talking about david fincher's zodiac do it like really low, like Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about David Fincher's Zodiac. That was a little um a little too Inspector much like the Gadget. Claw. A yeah, too much like it was a little Inspector okay, Gadget. Okay, let's, let's, let's bring it up a little bit. Okay. We're talking David Fincher's Zodiac. That was good. Thank you. That was like um, Grindhouse. Grind, yeah. Dear editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the Fourth of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually, first class. Well, I've been thinking. Oh, God, Sam, listen. There's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military blueprints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake. Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? Put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? From 2007, David Fincher's Zodiac is currently sitting at a 7.7 out of 10 on IMDb. 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, 78% on Metacritic, 4 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, and 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Now, Kim, I could not help but notice that you did not cheer when I mentioned the Ebert score. Uh... <laughs> How would you like to carry <laughs> the whole podcast? Yeah, so um, this is John's episode. Whoop. This is a movie that John's wanted on the podcast for a real long time. I've been, oh, here's The thing is, like, I've just been wanting to rewatch it for a really long time. He always wants to watch Zodiac. It's so- Always. <laughs> hey, we've got three hours. Let's watch Zodiac. It is the longest fucking movie. It's so long, John. Some movies are long. It doesn't... It doesn't- <laughs> That is a fact. You can quote me on it. Some movies are long. It doesn't make them bad. Can you imagine that on the poster for Zodiac? Some movies are long. Jonathan Dahan, Night Raw Film Street. Yeah. No, some movies are long. Uh, big deal. So it's a long movie. There's a lot of story to go oh, through. Oh, totally. Why don't you find this movie gorgeous to look at? Like, I, I just get, like, lost in the, the composition of shot in this movie. So... I'm very protective of my true, not necessarily true crime, but my nonfiction. Okay. And that might be why I've never gravitated towards Zodiac. Yeah. And I mean, you you know this. You always want to watch it. You've put it on a few times. I do not watch. I This is my first time sitting through Zodiac. Wow. To me, the type of person I am and how I like my nonfictional stories, it is a two hour and 40 minute recommendation to read the 
the novel, two novels that Robert Gray Smith wrote. He That's wrote, what it is to me. He, he wrote, wrote two? two? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I feel the same way, because at the end, I feel like oh, I really should That's all I the- want. At the end of yeah. the movies, it's just like, great. So I want to know more about this character and his cryptography obsession. Yep. And I want to read his Zodiac book. Especially, too, because... What's wrong with that? I find, but I find myself watching, and I'm like, how much was dramatized here, and how much was dramatized there, and how much is... What was true here, and what of these characters is written purely for... Uh, Hollywood plot conflict. Sure. And I'd rather just have the the true story. I'd rather read the Wikipedia page. You know, uh, here's the thing about some books, Kim. They're long. Like, <laughs> you know, the, some of us have three hours but that we can me, set aside. It's a long commercial to the true story because I would prefer the I would prefer to read the novel, which is that's just how I I feel about. Um, Does that make it a bad movie? And also, too, like, you gotta have to kind of, most of these types of movies, these uh, based on a true story, uh, dramatizations of crime and whatever, these were the movies that we got to watch on movie day in school. These were movie day movies. Okay. So, originally, we were comparing these movies with nothing. So it was just like, I get to watch a movie tomorrow or I have to do work. <laughs> so like the movie always reigns supreme. But now as an adult where I can choose my own content, I'm seeing the movie in a different light. Guys, I'm going to give you a, a, just a peek behind the curtain here. Uh, there was one day where I decided, hey, we have the afternoon to ourselves. Let's watch The Watchmen. Oh, we'll watch the extended cut. It'll be great. And it was our entire day. And it, it was it was obscenely long if you've ever sat through it. It's like watching one of the extended cuts of The Lord of the Rings, and Kim has never forgiven me for it. <laughs> and I think that's... <laughs> I was I... <laughs> groggy after. <laughs> so was I. It was not worth it. <laughs> well, whatever. It's, it's, you do not have to defend your position. It's no big deal. Let's just talk about this movie. One of the things I really like about this... Now, not, having not read the book, should probably say that. We've both, and probably you out there listening to, listened to lots of podcasts about the Zodiac. I grew up watching documentaries and the Biography Channel, so, like, I have always, like you also, have known about the Zodiac and got a pretty good understanding of it, right? So... <laughs> I, I don't. I can honestly say I don't know a ton about the Zodiac. Okay, that's fine. What I like about this movie is that it feels honest to those stories. Yes, I will say that, that it does feel accurate at least to the facts and dates and victims and investigations. I think most of the dramatization comes down to... Um, Paul Avery's character, uh, Inspector Tashi, and Jake Gyllenhaal's character. I think their personal lives and how much the case affects them is the dramatization. That's the Hollywood part. Agreed. But for the case's sake, especially because they're dealing with a case that was never solved, they kind of have to be as accurate as possible. They can't go and start finger pointing at people unless it matches the the case files yeah and i think this movie does a brilliant finger pointing because it can't just finger point because you're right it proposes some like there were a few different moments throughout the film and to the film's credit that i was like oh it's definitely this fucking person oh it's definitely this fucking person i'm like wait did paul avery that is the fucking magic of this movie right because it really gets you into the mindset of 
uh, narrowing to one person, but then also, oh, wait a minute, it's somebody else. Like, it really, it really does leave the possibilities open that it could be any number of people. They, they do a great job of adding weight to each of the suspects and, you know, maybe narrowing down to one. Well, and also the frustration, too, how you, you're so confident in a suspect and the wrench in things is the, the handwriting analysis. Just that you, you're trucking ahead and you completely believe, and I completely believe that it's one, this one particular suspect, but you, you know the case is unsolved. So you're yep. like, how is this suspect getting disproven? And it just comes down to um, the handwriting analysis expert they had. And one, maybe it was different handwriting. Two, what tools they used at the time. Yeah, there's... I mean that is that is a a great point. One of the things I love about this movie is is something that you could not include in a Zodiac movie. Like if somebody else remade this, they might not even bother. The idea that there was not a system in place for these people to communicate with each other. There is such a level of frustration in this movie where all of these guys are so close to solving this case. If only they had all of the information that everybody else has. Mm-hmm. Like everybody has a small piece of the puzzle and they can't figure out the whole piece. Yeah. Almost like the ciphers that he was sending to multiple newspapers. Like he's scattering clues everywhere. And it's crazy too that you realize that the FBI in the late 60s didn't even have access to police information from all different districts. Like, that wasn't just a default channeling. Yeah, it made Uh, no sense. That was great that you related it to the ciphers because it's almost like Zodiac knew that. In sending the the first ciphers out to three different newspapers, it's almost like he knows that he's playing in different jurisdictions. Yeah, like, that is a really cool look at it. it's, It's hard to say whether or not he was... Uh, thinking about it in in those terms i don't know because it could also just be a bit of like game theory where like the prisoner's dilemma like where you you tell somebody they have to do something and then the other person just assumes the the you know the double blind scenario playing like, it on them so that they have to publish yeah, it because exactly. they don't want to be the one that didn't publish it and yeah. then somebody gets murdered that weekend thank you you did yeah. a better job explaining it than i did and like that that that's all throughout the whole movie and i find that fascinating i think they handle it really well and like you re- you really feel with these characters that they are always so close to solving this and the only thing stopping them is their own fucking system it's crazy it's nuts and there's something, and I, I think this is why the Zodiac Killer has kind of stood the test of time. Um, not only because he wasn't caught, he, she wasn't caught, mm-hmm. they were Good not point. caught. Yeah. That, I'm leaning toward they. <laughs> <laughs> not only because they weren't caught, but because the ciphers, all of the puzzles, the strange cryptography is forcing police investigators, layman's journalists to play his game yeah even though for the most part you know he's just toying with you and even if you were to solve who knows what answers would be in the puzzle Mm -hmm. real life there i think there were four main puzzles that he sent only one has been solved yeah and the the, other one that's been solved was the one that was featured in the movie that the the history teacher couple solved uh, they never solved the the anagram at the bottom either. No, and who's to, who's to say it was ever made to be solved? Like it could just also be gibberish. Like it, yeah. it could actually mean nothing. Like well, yeah, and then you also have to think about the the Zodiac killer as a person. He's able to come up with like a language numerical puzzles, but also can't smell spell Christmas 
and has weird use of words. Is that on purpose? Is that all like, yeah, is it so you say. underestimate the puzzle? Like, I, it's, it's confounding. Yeah. The fact that he also writes Christmas wrong, like he double S's Christmas in, in a letter to a family member means that this is just a thing that he does. Yeah. And things like he relies on being in, in the paper, but uh, when he sends Paul Avery, the, the letter he sends him, he spelt his name like Averly or something. And for somebody who seems obsessed with the attention, he knows who's writing about him. That's true. So like it's 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 all either mistakes or a game or well, who knows maybe all the spelling errors become part of the the cipher for the puzzles. That's very true. Who knows? We I'm never gonna never look at them know. though because I don't want to get Forget I don't want to fall in that no. hole. If forty years if forty fifty if fifty years of people have not solved those puzzles, it's not gonna be me. Including people that based on the movie lost their minds on this case. <laughs> like I'm sure in his spare time, like when he. Was had nothing to do, wouldn't you just like play around with the cipher? Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's all you would do. I mean, especially if you're being paid to do it. Yeah. I can I can I posit a theory about your approach to this movie? Sure. Something that I was thinking about when we were talking about Manhunter and the Cell. Like, what's really great about those serial killer psychological stories is that you get you almost get two detective stories because yeah, they have to solve the murder. And, but they also have to solve the motive. So, like, solving the murder is is kind of like figuring out... They have to figure out where, where the killer is mm-hmm. and why the killer did it. Mm-hmm. And with serial killers, those are always two very complicated things. So it's almost like you have this psychological... Dete- all of the psychological detective work with all of the actual detective work. And with a movie like Zodiac, you don't get any of that psychology stuff. And... I think that's what always interests you the most and maybe why you would possibly rather. Well, it's hard to say. They never caught the guy. But like maybe you would get more of that in the book. Mm. And yeah, so like Zodiac, we're, we're not getting any of that. It's it's like we've taken that cool serial killer two-part detective story and just chopped it in half. And all we're left with is, you know, boots on the ground, old-fashioned detective work. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say maybe that's fair. I don't know. Yeah, and and but the <laughs> thing is, like how they handle it in this movie is something I really, really appreciate. I I think this movie is. I'm gonna say right now, I think this is one of David Fincher's best movies. Like uh, hands down, I think this is one of David Fincher's best movies. Cool. <laughs> I mean, if you want to rhyme off his catalog, I can either agree or disagree with sure, you. Sure, I'll start with ones you definitely like. Panic Room. Everybody likes Panic Room. Panic Room's best. Right? So good. Done. And you don't need to read off the rest. <laughs> yeah, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Fight Club, The Game. Did anyway. he do seven? He did do seven. Yeah, so Panic Room. Yeah, <laughs> so still Panic Room. Panic Room's underrated. Yeah. Panic Room's really underrated. Panic Room is good. I find this movie very... I find Zodiac to be very sensational less what am i trying to say without sensation it's yeah like it's it, it's not sen- especially the killings not sensationalized like mm-hmm. so in the opening we've got the hurdy-gurdy man playing in the background while these people are being killed at lover's lane and it's kind of friggin' cool to look at it sucks because it's a real story and all um i will say that so yes the the opening is very cinematically, it's really wonderful. Oh, even just driving down the street, yeah. looking through the past. Well, and you're in, you're introduced to the the color palette and the fuck yeah, you and, are. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great, but it's kind of an anticlimactic cold open, especially coming from 
the horror genre. Going into this, it's not sensational. It's a little, you have, you have questions about it, um, particularly the main character, whether she knows the killer or oh, not. Oh, yeah, right? Um, they do such a good job with How that. they behave to how the car leaves and comes back. It's quieter than you would expect. Agreed. And I, it's because I, it plays out in a way that feels realistic to the story. Mm-hmm. And it's all of the killings in the movie that we have the most time with and the most attention to are the ones that we have a record for. A kid survived that that shooting. And so we're able to get a lot of detail about what happened and how it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, same with the, the couple that was attacked at the lake. Which is so interesting. That itself is such an interesting fact that the males of each couple killing survived. Yeah, like they talk about it in the movie that maybe he's That he was little... so preoccupied with stabbing yeah, the girl he... or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And uh, and definitely the one in the beginning, you know, for it to believe the movie, maybe a bit of a personal connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the killing like with the cabbie, that one's so confusing. Well, that's because there's no info. You know, like there was no second person that survived. Yeah, and he like drove up a block and why was it just a guy alone? Like it doesn't fit the pa- the pattern that seemingly was emerging of couples and couples. Yeah. It's just a, a cabbie. And then he- And then, you know, at least, you know, as far as I had always heard, killed two police officers. I think they had maybe proven that that wasn't true even though he was taking credit for it. They don't even really show it in the movie. But that's how I've- had always heard of it yeah until then so like it's moments like that especially like with how little attention we get to the cabbie other than information like this is where the cab was he shot him he went to the front seat and walked away yeah that's 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 all we see of it so it makes me feel like we are at least uh in terms of evidence getting the details right in this movie fuck i gotta read the book now (laughs) <laughs> I told you. Yeah. <laughs> this is the problem. I do love that um, so much attention is paid to the intersection and it becomes uh, like a marker in time yes. for the two inspectors. Yeah. Like we wishes them happy birthday. They go there every year. Yeah. And kind of it's a mark of failure, but it's also kind of a mark where the Zodiac killer did something that made him even more random if possible it's also where the inspectors got on the case but yeah exactly that's where they were introduced to it and it's great too because there is a moment after uh mark ruffalo's character uh detective toshi has sort of been left alone with the case uh i think bill armstrong his partner has has left he's still going there on october 11th every year because it's the anniversary of them getting onto the zodiac case and you know just as he's getting to a point where it's hopeless and there's nothing else he can do, even though he's still sort of lighting a candle for this thing. We see Jake Gyllenhaal show up, which cinematically is great because it's, we are, there is, this is a passing. It's like they're trading off. Yeah, right? He's passing the baton almost. Like they don't know it yet, but they, that's exactly what's happening. He is coming up in the ranks and sort of taking over the case. I think it's brilliant. I love how it's done. So talking about the, the cabbie and how it's like a weird thing that he does. I've always wondered if this guy killed somebody more than one person that he knew personally that he was mad at mm-hmm. for whatever dumb reason and you know he got away with it to a degree at that time like he's gotten away with it 100 percent, and either enjoyed that sort of power or the the idea that he was he could outsmart the police mm-hmm. and continued killing or alternatively tried to start killing people at random to hide the fact that those were personal killings because that's what tied him to the murders is that he knew them. I think that's a really good theory. I also put a lot of weight in the fact that the killer 
had a obsession interest in the media and I think there was something very sporadic about the letters like they were almost like done in a manic state Mm. and when the zodiac would be in a manic state he'd get this idea for his letters and perhaps a letter that he wanted to do was the bloodstained shirt and the cabbie was the first opportunity to murder somebody to get his, to get access to the shirt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think maybe it was all in service of those letters just oh, to wow. terrify the media. Because he's just like, oh, shit, you know what I should have done is taken that girl's dress Yeah, or and like, you know, that would have been so cool because the blood, I could have proven that it was me. Yeah. Um, And I think he just basically, like, went outside, took a cab three blocks, six blocks from his house, and yeah. just... And then just walked back home. Yeah. Fuck. I've always found that... that- I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone here. Like the the lake uh, sequence where he stabs that couple, unsettling. Uh, the fact that he's got like a uniform with the zodiac sign on it is yeah. just like, ugh. Yeah, it's real weird. And maybe that's because there's already been release of that he's like stocky with brown hair at that point. But it also it seems like it's the only it's the one time that it's during the day. Yeah. You know, so like it's it, at night he's got a flashlight he can. He can really blind, blind them with the yeah. flashlight, even though that kid definitely saw, got a good look of him before he got shot in the beginning of the movie. Uh, so like, that's probably the only reason why he wore that outfit, which is interesting because he definitely, when I say he, I mean Arthur Lee Allen, the character who we come to maybe recognize as the Zodiac Killer. Oh, so good. John Carroll Lynch, yeah, he's he's incredible in everything that he's in. Oh, the, But the scene where they go to interrogate him at, at his job is really good it's yeah. it's basically that same feeling you get out of mindhunter the series on netflix yeah mindhunter is literally that scene in zodiac just in like hour-long segments it tickles the suspect bone <laughs> it, t- it totally makes sense anyway because i mean mindhunter is a david fincher show so again it all ties together so i think yeah. that's also you why- know what my favorite thing to film in in crime movies is when we we interview the suspect and we know it's him we just need to prove it's him yeah isn't that your favorite part of detective stories? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. But I mean, also, yeah, it's funny. I don't know if And when Yellow... they have the Zodiac watch. He's got the watch! <laughs> He's got the military boots. He's got the watch. He's obsessed with a dangerous game. It's him. The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. Well, we'll be checking in on that. Uh, Let me ask you something else. Were you ever in Southern California at any time in 1966? Is this about the Riverside killing? Yes. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I like the auto races. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous? No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is... That's a horrible thing to say. So, you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. I, I, I don't know if David Fincher has uh, 
some sort of color palette that he literally looks to and goes, okay, the color yellow is a crime movie. So anytime I do a crime movie, it's going to be hella yellow. Or if it's just because it's the 70s and like yellow just fits with everything. But fuck, is there a lot of yellow in this? And Mindhunter. Mindhunter's also got a lot of yellow (laughs) in it. Probably just a 70s thing. I like the yellow. I love the yellow. That's (laughs) what I'm saying. Oh, this movie looks great. Uh, everything this guy does is is pretty awesome. Um, you sound like the Frosted Flake Tiger. Right now? Mm-hmm. or Oh, when I said great. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I know the movie's long. But I, there's so much to take in. There's so much. You need all of this information. So that way, at, at, like, and then you also need these characters to sort of give up. We need time to pass. And, that, and that's why we need Jake Gyllenhaal to come in. Because he wasn't gonna just do it. As much as he was always interested in being there, they, they would push him out of the room all the time. Mm-hmm. So he was just an interested observer like everybody else reading the newspaper. But we literally had to wait for like the old guard to go crazy, get drunk and leave for him to come in and just sort of take it upon himself and become the 70s podcaster who's <laughs> doing all the data collection. Yeah. And I think that's where the movie really picks up. Like, I think I think because we follow Jake Gyllenhaal so much in the beginning, he's not really doing anything. But, like, you are... creating a scrapbook yeah, for later Jake <laughs> Yeah, he's already planning. He knows. <laughs> a good Eagle Scout always scrapbooks. Uh, because in the second half of the movie, when he takes over, it becomes a much more interesting movie. And it might also just be because he's inexperienced. Yeah, and he doesn't belong there. And I think the fact <laughs> that he's underestimated is what gives him so much access. Because yeah. they're like, he's a cartoon. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, nobody <laughs> would expect him to be there. He's, nobody knows him. Well, it's been 10 years. What harm will he yeah, do? Yeah, nobody's asking. Nobody cares about this case. But these detectives, you know, like like probably 100 other cases they have on their desk, maybe not as serious as this one, they want they want it solved. Yeah. And if anybody came by and said, I want to help, they'd probably be like, yeah, sure. Let me, let me, let me just help you real quietly. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think, too, the fact that there are ciphers unsolved in that case file and then the only one solved came from somebody who was reading the paper where they were published. The case kicked off with the public's help. That's a great point. Yeah, they got it. This, this movie is just so frustrating. Like, if only they had the fucking internet. Like, just, <laughs> oh, good God. Like, the only people that were really able to help them were the people in that newspaper circulation. You're yeah. right. Because, like, if they could have cast a wider net, they could have got more people. And it's so hard now because I know they've they've started going back to, like, retest the evidence for DNA and stuff. But mm. the, there have been so many fingers and so many hands and so many, like, coughs and sneezes probably near that evidence. Yeah, nobody was ever handling things. Because with... they didn't know that that existed. No. So, I mean, they had fingerprints and blood types. That was it. That's, that's all they were worried about. That's all they knew to worry about, mm-hmm. right? But the second half of this movie, and also like Jake Gyllenhaal's uh, eagerness but unpreparedness, is also what makes the second half of this movie so fucking tense. Like, there are scenes in the second half of this movie that are straight out of a horror movie. Are you talking about that California basement? I am talking about that California basement! There are Why not... does he go down there? I don't know. <laughs> you know, that that's what's actually really interesting about his character, because he knows he shouldn't. He has to go down. He could very well die down there, but before he dies, he would know who the killer is. And like that's what's fucked up about Jake Gyllenhaal's character, that he's willing to put his life on the line just to know. Oh, we saw it through his his wife's eyes, John. Okay. 
When I when I, I, I when hate, I say life on the line, I, I literally hate that though. I just side note, I do hate the whole to show him getting obsessed. We're gonna have his wife get slowly irritated over the years and then finally leave. Maybe that happened. Maybe yeah. he got too obsessed and his marriage ended. They just do it so often in Hollywood. They do, and it like a lot. they were so cute on their first date. Their first date started because of Zodiac obsession, right? and now she's sick of it. Yeah, like well, let this man have life's work. <laughs> the, the, well, I guess he was concerned about yeah, like the Zodiac thing is interesting, and he's concerned about his friend. But I think it's once it starts becoming a danger for them is where she's like, "This is stupid. What are you doing?" Yeah, especially given that the police have given up, and nobody's gonna grant him protection because he's digging up old wounds right? well and it, he's kind of inactive at this point like they haven't heard from the zodiac at all yeah. so it's assumed the zodiac is dead or in prison for something else but that california basement but that california basement oh, california man. basement <laughs> it is done so so fucking well because one that california basement detail is something that you get like in the first act I'm of the movie. I'm such a winter's day. Yeah, you get, it, you get it way back in the winter of 1974, right? <laughs> and then also the fact that we are, we are hang so much weight gets put on the handwriting samples that they have. And if only they had more handwriting samples from the guy that was doing these posters. And he goes to meet somebody else who hired that person who did those posters. And then to get the reveal that the person that he is in a house with, locked inside with, is the person that was handwriting those posters. And how freely he gave that information. Oh, but so... he So if he's not the killer, which I, I'm assuming he's not the killer. Yeah, I don't know. How much he relishes Robert Graysmith being uncomfortable is pretty great. You live alone? Uh, most dangerous game ran in May 69. So that would be about Nine weeks before the first Zodiac land, correct? Uh, yeah. Do you think he saw the film in our theater and was inspired? Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Would you like to go upstairs and check? No. Thank you. Thanks for everything. You're welcome. See, it's it's like watching Willem Dafoe in American Psycho, right? Yes. Because you you never get a read on whether he knows this person, like whether Christian Bale is the person who killed Paul Allen, mm -hmm. right? That is what's genius about those segments. And he, I just, love that you use like two actors' names and then one character name in that description. <laughs> I did. I, Christian Bale, Paul Allen, <laughs> Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, I could have just said Jared Leto. <laughs> 
But that that is what's so good. Like this guy is helping Jake Gyllenhaal's character for no reason. Mm-hmm. He has no reason to help him, but he's being helpful. And he drove way out into the city to meet him. Gave him, you know, follow me back to my house in the suburbs where we'll be alone. I've got one of those old style doors that locks as soon as you come in. Don't worry. Nobody else is here. This is one of my, this scene is shot like a nightmare. And I think that's what I find it so fascinating. Especially Um, because um, Jake Gyllenhaal seems so concerned with somebody else being in the house. That's, there are, there is somebody upstairs, right? Like he can hear footsteps and dust is falling from upstairs. But this guy says no one else is here. It's just a little detail like that. Maybe it's a duplex. He could have said that. He could have said that. But just like it's there little details that provide such a deep sense of unease that is just so amazing. This segment in this movie is one of, I think honestly one of the greatest things that David Fincher has ever filmed and it is so brilliantly constructed because even before that he gives them a alternate for the zodiac symbol. Like this guy seems like he knows oh, the, a lot the, about the zodiac. Yeah, the the film thing is interesting. Yeah, how like the countdown at mm-hmm. the beginning of a film reel that gets snipped, so Be- regular people don't see that. And because we've been so focused, and the cops were so almost sold on it being the watch, that it shows you kind of that thing that can happen when people get wrongly convicted, or cases die, or or suspects get wrongly focused on yeah because police find a piece of evidence and interpret it one way and that becomes set in stone so early in the investigation that it's never looked at again yeah they get really narrow focused yeah they get go fever and it's just like there is no other alternative and i was that way too as soon as they introduced the the zodiac watch with the matching symbol i was like oh this could this could totally be what inspired the zodiac yeah but when you think about it, that could have been just a crazy freak coincidence. They Agreed. They are completely speculating as to what the symbol and maybe the symbol and the name are not correlated. Yeah, yeah. And I think not. I'm on. I'm telling you right now. I could talk for an hour just about this scene, and I'm gonna keep coming back to it for at least five more minutes. California <laughs> basement. But just how it's presented, how he's like, he also knows a lot about the dangerous game and is a big fan of that movie and gives them, gives him another alternative for the Zodiac. And then we find out about the posters and then we find out about the basement. And then he's standing there waiting for him. And they put him in a boatload of shadows. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and even when they're in the basement, he's like, okay, well, thanks for coming. And the way he just sort of looks at him and then turns the light out in the basement. like I expected him to run after him. Oh, I love it. It's (laughs) so, so good. (laughs) And then he turns into a plant and he eats him. (laughs) And how he's just so calm while Jake Gyllenhaal is losing his shit. And he appears behind him to unlock the door for him. Everything is so... Uh, oh it's it's scary it's so scary (laughs) and i think it's genius because we we like the police have zeroed in on arthur lee allen but we have to recognize the fact that there are alternative theories Mm -hmm. it's also so interesting that that whole sequence comes up kind of from a random tip that jake gyllenhaal gets phoned yeah and that's just a a random tree branch that has just sprung from the like the tree of investigation yeah. 10 years later. Yeah, everybody is telling him that this is dangerous. 
and he doesn't even think to to second guess this or to fact check it or to do any sort of research to find out whether or not well because it seems so random it's just an anonymous phone call that's like i have a friend who hung on to this film canister that belongs to this guy and you're just like what is this lead you're chasing down yeah and then it turns out you're in the house and you're like is this the killer (laughs) (laughs) i love it uh so I do have a question for you. Sure. Before we wind down, because, John, we do have to wind down. I know. I'm sorry. There was a sequence in the film that I found pretty confusing or kind of a weird 180. At some point late later on in the investigation, Dave Toshi is by himself at this point. His partner has transferred. Mm-hmm. He is accused of writing one of the later letters, and he loses his job. Yeah. Why do they think that he wrote the letter? Uh, I'm sorry, we were talking a little bit over that segment of the movie, so I also kind of missed it. She, uh, his, That just seems like a huge jump. His wife said something about him writing a letter to the newspaper because they canceled a cartoon. And I, for some reason, I, I don't know if it's that his handwriting matches that letter a little bit or something. I don't even, I honestly, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, it, it, seemed, it, it came and went so fast. It seemed pretty monumental. Like this was one of the lead guys who was obsessed with catching the Zodiac. And then all of a sudden he's pulled off the case and he's no longer. Yeah. I, I Unfortunately, I also kind of missed that. But I was like, ah, whatever. The important part is that he was accused of writing this letter. Mm-hmm. And they kicked him off the case well, which is whatever. so weird though like what... i was to be perfectly honest i was very worried you were gonna ask me that question oh i'm so sorry uh the only thing that that i can justify is that maybe they thought he he was so obsessed with the case and wanted to stay on it didn't want it to get closed so that he maybe drummed up some fake letters well to yeah revive interest so he could continue working on it. Well, like I think that's, that's what their motive for it was. Yeah. But I, I don't remember the A plus B that got them to yeah. who wrote it. Because that's the only thing that I could think that would justify just removing him almost from the movie by that point. Pretty well, yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm real life. I'm assuming something like that happened in real life for that to be in the film. I, I would think it exactly that happened. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm going to look into that more because I, do, I just don't know how we got there. Yeah. Also, like in in terms of finger pointing, as we were talking earlier, Jake Gyllenhaal has a pretty good monologue um, to his wife about like, "Why are you doing this?" You know, and it's like, "Because I need to know. I need to see him, and I need to know that it's him, and I need him to know that I know that it's him." And like, I, I said it's good. It's actually not that great. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally fine. It's boilerplate. I like, mean, it makes for a, a nice final scene. Exactly, and I I think. Makes for a lovely. It is the scene. greatest finger pointing. You did this, and I know it. In any film about a case that hasn't been solved, and I think they can get away with it for two reasons. One, no words are exchanged. It's just Jake Gyllenhaal walks into a hardware well, I, I store. I believe he says, "Hi, can I help you today?" My mistake. <laughs> That's true, and that's just courteous like you you can't fault somebody for being polite but there is a moment where they exchange glances they recognize each other they maybe aren't necessarily happy to see each other and then he turns and leaves he doesn't do anything he gets exactly what he said he wanted which is which is great for his character because he gets that but there's no justice behind it like i think in his mind he's he's doing it with police taking him in handcuffs to the courthouse you know Mm -hmm. but it's it's not it's just oh you got away with it. I know you did it, but I can't prove it. And you're not going to do anything to make my job easier. So I guess we'll just continue on like this. Yeah, but I guess there's something too. Like the least I can do is leave you with the fact that 
somebody else on this planet knows. Yeah, you, like no matter what, you've been caught. Yeah. And like I'm not the only person who thinks this and you know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's and also that 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 person Arthur Lee Allen is dead. So he can't defend himself and from what I understand, not a very likable guy, so not a big family left behind to support him. Mm-hmm. Um so he, that literally is the only one person that they can say you fucking did this. And we, like, because we leave the movie thinking to ourselves, it was Arthur Lee Allen, mm-hmm. which I mean is the prime suspect. Um but the the only reason they're able to get away with that and have it so pointed is because he's dead. And because he's the most likely suspect. <laughs> yeah, but they, they couldn't make that accusation if he was still alive. You know what I mean? They, maybe you could still have that scene because it's there's nothing said, there's nothing exchanged. I think, exchanged. though, because this film is based on a novel and the novel points the finger. Well, we haven't read the novel. We haven't read the book. I would assume it probably tries to leave it a little open, and and because and I think that's maybe also why we have such a great scene with uh, with Charles Fleischer uh, in in the basement because we do need at least somebody else who seems yeah. very credible. P.S. Yeah. Uh, one last thing to end on: Charles Fleischer, the guy who plays that movie theater owner who's super uber duper creepy, mm-hmm. he does the voice for. Roger Rabbit. That's how you would know him. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, and that's wow. that's always fun to think about during that scene because it's like, oh man, so much of my childhood is is wrapped up in that guy's vocal cords. So but, that basement uh, really, really messed with you then. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so Kim, how would you rate Zodiac? I'm gonna give Zodiac a two and a half out of four. Okay, I give Zodiac a three point five out of four. I love this movie. I, I do agree. The front half, um, the front half is long. And I think that's just because it's a little. Yeah, it's I never a little said dry. anything about the front half. You're in this like the back half is exciting business. I, <laughs> yeah, I the prefer. Whole thing. I prefer the front half. Okay. I like the investigators over Jake Gyllenhaal's story because one, I you know I I do really like Robert Graysmith as a character, but as I said, I want to read the book and I want to know his interest in cryptography. We should totally read that book. But I. I don't know. Dave Toshi's got some sweet suits. He's got the curly hair and the sideburns. <laughs> but he takes his tomatoes out of his BLT. Which is prop- not even his own BLT. Yeah, that's true. His swiped BLTs. Ugh. And it's- what was this thing with animal crackers? I don't know. A guy's obsessed with them. At first, I thought it was because he was maybe quitting smoking, but there are scenes where he smokes. Oh, maybe he's trying to quit smoking. That could and be maybe it. it's because we're following such a long period of time. It's just him failing and trying all over and over and oh, over again. Oh, good point. Yeah, like he, he starts to smoke more as the Zodiac case drags on. Mm. All right. And I mean, we didn't even mention like a career best performance from Robert Downey Jr. He's amazing in this movie. You, okay. A career best. <laughs> I stand I, I stand yeah, alone. Yeah, I'd say his Johnny Depp is pretty good. He does a great Johnny Depp in this movie, right? <laughs> he, Johnny there, Depp's all over that office. There are plenty of scenes where it really looks like he's a Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. It's like, and I love when he's wearing the, the buttons and they make those like, I am not Paul Avery buttons. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a great. fun way to deal with the fact that a serial killer has specifically targeted you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, boy. Ah, oh, the seventies, another time. I love this movie. I love it. I love how frustrating it is. I love how it looks. I love the music. It doesn't just make you want to go. It does. learn more about the case. It though. does, but sometimes all I have is an afternoon, and I, I and a movie. Is Are you gonna feel bad afternoon. though if you find out like something was like exaggerated and I don't know was wrong? Like, no, because I think it made for a great movie. Man, I think I want to give it a four out of four. I'm gonna stick with three point five. Movie's great. Movies, movie. I love it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's talk about another unsolved crime. We're heading to Texarkana this time to talk about 
the Texarkana Phantom in the town that dreaded sundown. He was never caught? No. Oh. That's the whole, that's the crux of this episode. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Roll the trailer. Samuel P. Fuller, age 24. Linda Mae Jenkins, age 19. Brutally attacked March 3rd, 1946. Howard W. Turner, 29. Emma Lou Cook, 17. Bodies discovered in a wooded area on March 24th. Roy Allen, 17. Peggy Loomis, 15. Both found dead April 14th in Spring Lake Park. Floyd Reed, age 34. Murdered in his home on May 3rd. Mrs. Reed shot twice, but survived. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the Phantom Killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in The Town That Dreaded Sundown, starring Academy Award winner Ben Johnson as Captain J.D. Morales of the Texas Rangers. We got a cold-blooded killer here, a man who nobody sees, a phantom who so far hasn't made any mistakes. Andrew Prine as Deputy Norman Ramsey of the Texarkana Sheriff's Department. The only thing we really do know is that we've got a very strange person on our hands. From 1976, the town that dreaded... Take two. The town that dreaded sundown. is currently sitting at a 6.1 out of 10 on IMDb. 42% 42% on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 2.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. As with Zodiac, The Town of Dreaded Sundown is based on a real series of crimes. Yeah, and at the beginning of the movie, very much paints it like it's going to be a like biopic, that it is very true to the events, and yeah. that only the names have been changed. It, it kind of almost has the same opening as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? And even tries to paint like a picture. like It oh. has a very Texas Chainsaw-y vibe. Now, yeah. I know we're in Texarkana, right? so we're going to get a lot of sun and sand. But yeah, the, the voiceover work, the narrator, which I fucking love. He's so good. The title credits, it's just... Is that title it's card not... It's a mood. Like it's a, a whole mood. <laughs> <laughs> and they do a great job trying to paint a picture, right? Like it's, oh, the world war is over. Things are finally getting back to normal. Little did they know in Texarkana they were going to be dealing with a killer who was afoot. Yeah, he cuffs his pants and that's all we know. And he's everywhere. Okay, so uh, when this movie has that tone... I really like this movie. Like, I really like when this movie is, I don't want to say Texas Chainsaw-y, but when this movie is serious, 
and scary and has that narration. I'm all about it. They're towing the line between two entirely different movies. Like it's given us full on Texas Chainsaw Voguing, and <laughs> <laughs> and then. We do like a 180 and we're in... Like a Three Stooges movie. Yeah, like a cop sitcom. I don't like Sparkplug. I love Sparkplug. I know you do. And (laughs) it was very hard not to try and talk about it while we watched it because I could see... Where's Sparkplug? (laughs) I thought they were going to break out into song at some parts. I don't know if it was maybe to bring some like levity to keep it driving safe. I don't know. I think so. Yeah, and also too, they're they're kind of toeing the line of of being uh, exploitative of a true event. They're really, really hammering the fact that this is based on a true crime. It's an unsolved murder. It's not necessarily handled in the most delicate of senses. Like this film is definitely. I would consider it a slasher film, a very early slasher film. Agreed. Yeah, which when you're believing these are real people who experience real things, like that gets very dark very quick. And especially the trombone murder, which we'll get to. We'll get to uh, it. The town, that, the town that dreaded sundown has some really dark moments, and it also has some bonkers, silly, cheeseball moments. It's, it's nuts. Like they were definitely trying to make this appeal to a broader audience yeah right like this this is almost like the zodiac of its time because it goes there it's it's based on a story that people know because it's i mean this is definitely before a time that we had a vocabulary for serial killers but you know the fact that he was the phantom and he wasn't caught and there were a lot of rumors surrounding it it's a story that people in that area knew but they were trying to make it like the crime thriller that you would go see in the theater even if you never went to go see a horror movie because you just didn't like it. Like, yeah. The fact that it's trading on a real story is is what's given it legs for a broader audience. And I, it's weird because I, from, from what I understand, it did pretty good at the box office. But nowadays, the only people I think that are really watching this are horror people. Yeah, And it's sure. not really a horror movie. Scary John. It's got scary parts. Pretty scary. But then it's it's lined up with like, oh, we're driving our car off the road into some water. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, I don't like that. I really It doesn't fit, I will agree, but I do love it. <laughs> it's it's funny though, because we watched not to talk about it too much, but we watched the the newer Town the Dreaded Sundown, the remake slash sequel. First time. Very surprising. Yeah. Surprisingly enjoyed. Yeah. Enjo- enjoyable. Sorry. Um, I kind of really liked it. First first half. <laughs> sure. I mean, like, it does some things, whatever. It did get very scream very quick. Yeah. It, but... it plays with a world where the movie and the story exist, which I thought was great. Which is pretty wonderful because we will get to it at the end of this, I'm, a, I'm sure. The Town That Dreaded Sundown from 1976 does get a little meta. It itself is a pretty meta horror film. I fucking love that move. But the, the, the reason I'm bringing the new one up is that it has your sort of new, I don't want to say new age, but like, you know, mid-millennia slasher vibe that's not taking itself too seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Arguably, the original's doing the exact same thing. It's not trying to be super scary and like really deep down unsettling it's got some levity is what i'm trying to say and maybe it's just that you know it's like 40 years ago we see it as a little cheesier 
than the a- the average audience might have seen it back then. I think it comes down to also the score. Like it's got like a bumbly at expects, times. Expect some laughs. At score. times, yeah. I think you're underestimating the the parts where we're with the Phantom when he's stalking teenagers because. Okay, first first couple killed. It's March 3rd. They actually survive. And it's the first night that we see the Phantom. He appears under the hood of a car. Uh, we get the, the full mask ensemble. It looks good. It looks great. And then all of us who had never seen it before are like, oh my god, it's Jason from part two! Right. Uh, and then we all look like losers to our super horror f- friends. Because <laughs> <laughs> ah, we're like, duh. I mean, I only saw this for the first time within within the last calendar year. I only saw it for the first time within the last calendar week. There you go. <laughs> and then 21 days later, on March 24th, we have another couple who are murdered. They kind of kick off this big manhunt. Did you happen to read it all about uh, the the detective, like the real-life detective? Texas Ranger, I did sorry. briefly. I did see that he was based off a real person. Okay, so his name was, uh, was Lone Wolf Morales. And he got that nickname because he was known for going into gunfights by himself, but also coming out by himself. Oh, shit. <laughs> Morales right. is the character name, though. Is it? Yeah. Oh, my mistake. Maybe it's Gonzalez. I can't that's, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, J.D. Morales. Captain J.D. Morales is the my character. My mistake. And then, April 14th, the third murder. Mm. This is the one that I want to I want to really sit on because this one was the definitely the darkest and probably the most iconic from this, the film. Okay. This is the prom night murder yeah. where the trombone player and her boyfriend are like, let's go park. I'm like, I don't know if we should park. And they're like, let's go park. So they go park. In the one place that cops aren't circulating. Yeah. And lo and behold, our phantom is there. You got a big reaction out of this scene when it happened it was very dark I, yeah it made me uncomfortable and i felt bad too because it's prom <laughs> like they no, don't know i this. felt bad because this is based on real people i didn't get the same i can't reap the same slasher joy from a movie that's shouting that it's based on true events and is okay sure i'm with you i was very emotionally invested in the in the pair and so this scene i found very difficult especially too because i did not know what was going to happen Mm. and i wasn't sure how dark we were going to go now i know this film was 1976 it was very low budget i doubted we were going to go full poughkeepsie tapes uh (laughs) with that trombone but when he started like wrapping and and attaching his knife to i'm like what the fuck is happening right now i was like what the fuck which is funny. Because Don't kill her with her joy. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's because I, I watched this movie originally after editing a article that Tyler Liston had put together on the website. Uh, super great article. Highly recommend it. Uh, just, you know, just search 10 Dread Sunday. We recommend it. that article all the time. It's so good, Everyone's though. read it, John. There's, oh, like, <laughs> one of the biggest pet parts, one of, my, one of my favorite parts about it is that he does a great job painting a picture of late 40s you know everybody's home the world has gone quiet again we can go back to just hanging out on everyone's cars have terrible handling (laughs) (laughs) oh we're slip sliding down the road right i'd like to know just why the hell there ain't a sign up down there on that road telling me that the road ends park plug shut up and they're all driving like 20 kilometers sorry 20 miles an hour Mm, yeah 
so I knew that trombone thing was coming. Mm. And when it happens in the movie, I'm just like, I rolled my eyes into tomorrow. Why? Because I think it's dumb. No, you don't. I do. I don't like the trombone kill. Oh. I just, something. It's, it's very early, so you have to give it, you have to be a little lenient on how it's filmed. But that's still fucking twisted. It's super twisted. Agreed. And let's be real. They were being very soft on how it happened. He stabbed her lightly. Like, I do not think that's how it went down. No. Um, I mean, I I thought she was going to get raped with it. I'm being completely honest. But who knows? Maybe she fucking was. So the real girl didn't, that that didn't happen at all. You know what I mean? There was no trombone? No. Uh, he did not kill somebody by affixing a knife to a trombone. Oh. That did not happen. He, you know, unfortunately, the two of them did die. Yeah. Uh, they were killed. They, did he do that played... tree wraparound thing? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know whether or not. Because he... that was maybe uncomfortable too yeah yeah well the, yeah like she's incredibly helpless right like it's it's and the it's biting what's with the biting biting's not true bite the here's the interesting thing though the biting was a rumor that circulated mm. so i mean that's kind of something interesting the movie is doing it's sort of playing Incorporating. around yes yeah, so, and who knows maybe maybe the trombone thing was a rumor that had come about that uh, sounds like a total rumor. Like, she was murdered by her own trombone. Yeah. She was a saxophone player. We know that much. Oh. Um, <laughs> Less <laughs> impactful. <laughs> Flip this entire movie. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, the real life uh, crimes were pretty nasty. Even the people that survived. Like, it's it's rough to read about. I'm not going to go into, like, absolute detail here or anything. But like, it, the same as the movie, the people that live, live. And the people that that don't don't i i think there's something that always connects most with um stories about teenagers being murdered and like young lovers being murdered they always resonate and they become these huge monumental moments in like crime history and in town like small town history because there's something so pure about teenagers on a friday night on the town like they are the the epitome of like living their lives yeah and they're just trying to like live they're just trying to experience joy and experience love for the first time and to be murdered in that moment is the cruelest thing and i think that's why we always like flock to these stories about teen killers because it's people being knocked down in their their prime is something that our psyche just cannot grasp oh yeah i honestly i think that's partly why body horror resonates with people so much like we all go through puberty so we all have that experience but uh <laughs> and, you know maybe this is just a me thing but like there's don't like, you hate puberty well yeah it's <laughs> a not... new segment by john <laughs> <laughs> no it's just the idea that like they really try and scare you about sex and like the idea that you could become pregnant in your entire body or life changes or just that you could uh, you know, depending on how old you are when you were getting sex ed. Don't go have sex. There's a man with a hook in the woods. There's a man with a hook in the woods. There's AIDS. There's HIV. There's all kinds of things that could in, like make your body a living hell if you just dip your toe in that water. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Um, I mean, we often look at teenagers having sex, though, especially from, like, a modern slasher eyes, as they have transgressed, and at this point, they're fair game. Like, they have sinned, and now they can be claimed. But I'm kind of looking at, at in, in true crime eyes that it's kind of the exact opposite. It's just that they are they are doing something so purely for enjoying life, experiencing life. Oh, great like dating, all of that stuff for the first time 
it's more shocking because they are so good and because what they're doing is so pure living. It always hits harder when you see that kind of stuff happen to teenagers. I, you know, not because they have their entire lives ahead of them, but because they're also not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Like they are, like you're saying, like they're just, they're just living their lives. Well, especially in small towns too. It's like they have nowhere to go. They have nothing to do. So they park their car at a scenic spot. Yeah. By daytime, it's a public park. People walk their dogs there. People scoot their butt up and do that weird hike up there. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the the darkness that makes it dangerous. And uh, yeah, this movie really got to me. Wow. That killer was spook. Also, the fact that he just appeared and disappeared so quickly. This movie doesn't do a real great job of showing the police work because they're they're too busy doing a little bit of slapstick with the police. Well, yeah, like, unfortunately, like, when your main characters are either victims, killers, or police, the police have to be the foils and, like, the, the comedic element of yeah, the story. Yeah, and I don't think they either were at liberty to or wanted to delve too much into the psychology of the killer maybe they didn't know oh yeah because no, I don't think so. we got that one dinner scene with the psychiatrist and he was just babbling some gibbledygook about how like oh he's so sadistic and he's so sadistic and he's sexually motivated and they're like oh but he he didn't he didn't have his way with any of the victims and they're just like no oh, but he's motivated by fighting <laughs> like yeah i mean <laughs> sure <laughs> It, it just, I didn't feel like I got any of the killer at all. No, but I do love that scene. Like, I really love that scene because the biggest thing they're trying to drive home is that he could be anybody. He's not going to be a guy who just rides the rails, looks deranged, lives in the woods. But I mean, this he is, could have been. He could have been. But I mean, based on the psychiatrist. And he in disappeared the movie, by the rails. So I think that their psychological <laughs> profile was way fucking off. <laughs> I mean, psychological profiles are always way off. But they he's positing the theory that he looks like a normal person. He lives a normal well, life. Well, I mean, that makes sense why the mask. Well, yeah. Because if he was just some dude living out in the woods who rides the rails like who cares if the kids see you so i don't know if you know this much what about the real life story i don't there is only one account of him wearing a mask oh and it's the first two kids that got attacked the ones uh, that happen to survive more than one set of people survived oh. in fact the second group of kids um that reported being attacked he, they said that he was not wearing a mask. Oh. Which almost makes it scarier that he's not trying he's to conceal more confident. Because, well, either that he's more confident or, or he's that rash. he's very certain he's going to kill them. Oh, wow. You only need to wear a mask if, you, if you're worried about somebody identifying you. Yeah. And if you've made the decision, kill them, you don't need the mask. So did they get a physical description of him? Or? I don't think so. Because, I, mean, I mean, it's mostly like flashlights in your face. Yeah. So, I mean, like the flashlight is obscuring... The flashlight makes it impossible to identify him, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, not wearing a mask. And also the couple that was attacked at home, where the husband was shot through the oh, window. Oh, man. So she... she in, That like, scene got me too. That scene's nuts. And like as you see it in, in the movie, and as happened in real life, uh, the wife had been shot in the like, face. In the cheek, yeah. Like, twice. And was hiding in her kitchen... When she saw the back door open and his foot come through, like he's coming into the fucking house and she decided, nope, getting out of here. So she never saw him. All she saw was his leg. Like she never saw anybody outside. We don't know if he wore a mask that time or not. Uh, But she's, you know, she managed to escape and got rescued the exact same way. She made her way to the neighbor's place. Yeah. 
that was a really intense scene oh, because it's nuts. It, he changed his mo. He he saw somebody at the grocery store. He followed her home. He waited till nightfall. Shot her husband through the window, just yeah. like in his reading chair. There's just something so anticlimactic about it because it's not like an earned thing. Like it's not like there was a struggle or a fight or there was no hero's journey. Like it was just he was there and then he he, he wasn't. Yeah. And that moments like that make the film feel like it is based off real life. Yeah. Because we're introduced to a character and then they die and it's so inconsequential. And then we're following the other character and she's crawling through a cornfield. Like it's crazy. It's dark. Super dark. But I mean, going back to just real quick, going back to that dinner sequence with the with the psychiatrist. I fucking love that moment in the movie because we see somebody in the background <laughs> with cuffed pants with cuffed pants <laughs> and he like he pays his bill and he, he goes to the door and he, he like he turns back like we're just watching his feet that's all we can see but you but the conversation is going on and he's eavesdropping and he's he's very clearly relishing it and then he walks away that is so awesome but that kind of encompasses the whole film in the sense that that's what the film is positing that the the phantom is still around right and when we get to the end of the movie they do such a brilliant job really like putting the nail in the coffin on that idea because now we are at the premiere of the town that dreaded sundown it's so weird people are lined up including a pair of boots with some cuffed pants like and at the same time our that voiceover narration that we've been loving this entire time says like he may be out there Texarkana today still looks pretty much the same. And if you should ask people here on the streets what they believe happened to the Phantom Killer, most would say that he is still living here and is walking free. Come on. God, I love that move. That that part of this it was movie. A, that was a great move, though. The yeah. the premiere of the own movie at the end. I was just like, "What is happening?" It's such a weird thing. Like, I don't know a lot of other movies from that time period that were doing the exact same thing. Like, that was such a brilliant move. It this movie was really strange in that I never knew what to expect, especially when they set up the cops at all the different lovers' lanes, the decoys. Oh and man! And we had like a whole like <laughs> some like it hot sequence. <laughs> yeah. Like we were in. Some like it hot for at least fifteen minutes. It was good. I was like, "He's like, we got to make it look convincing. Let me, let me cuddle up." Oh my gosh! And like the whole like wig falling off, like it was just bonkers. That part was funny. That part made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, it, but I, I didn't like the. I didn't like anything else. Well, I just honestly, I think it just had too much humor. Is what it comes down to. Like, yeah, we need some laughs. We need something to sort of let the air out of these scenes. But I think we could have done with significantly less comedy. Yeah, I mean, tonally, it was it was kind of a weird ride. But for the time, it's probably you could probably call it a horror comedy. It's not it's not the level of horror comedy you would see now. Yeah, which is so weird because it is based on truth. And yeah. reading up on like the actual Phantom, they didn't take too many liberties to the story. Yeah, like they they definitely left out some of the darker parts of uh, of of what he did, but also Wait, uh, what what do you got? Okay, oh. so, um, so the first couple that gets attacked, um, this this is really fucking crazy. So, uh, he makes them get out of the car. He tells the dude to take his pants off, and while he's doing that, 
um, the girl that's with him hears like the loudest snap or crack she's ever heard. She's convinced that he shot this guy in the head. He actually pistol whipped him, but he hit him so hard that his skull broke in three places. Like that's that's how hard he hit him. That she thought the sound was a gunshot going off. Wow. Managed to survive somehow, which is insane. But he looks up at her, and this is all by her account. Tells her to run. And then he continues beating this kid while he's down and unconscious. She catch he catches up with her later, and he says, "Why are you running?" She's like, "You told me to." And he calls her a liar, and he. I hits her, knocks her down to the ground, and he sexually assaults her with his gun. Oh. Yeah. It's fucked. That's kind of interesting though, that that murder, because that's closer to the first murder in the 2014 remake sequel. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Fuck. It's dark. Yeah. I don't yeah. like that. And like some of the other couples, uh, from what I understand, just clerical error. They didn't perform an autopsy on the two of them that they found. They, they were shot in their car. Um, so we don't know if anybody was sexually assaulted at any point. Not that it's necessarily important to the story, but I mean, in trying to like figure out the psychology of this guy. Yeah. Well, and especially too, because I think in in the true case, he did wait around three weeks every time. So I mean, it, it could have been a sexually motivated thing. Like Again, he, yeah, yeah. he went to Lover's Lane every three weeks at night. It's just part of part of his deal. Yeah, and like the not not that it matters all that much. Uh, just in terms of like what's true to life and what's not, the chase sequence at the end obviously didn't happen. Like not that was so funny though. <laughs> but with the train and stuff. Yeah, he just like disappeared behind the train, and they were like, hmm, 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 hmm. I I think it's a I think it's a cool willy nilly because like, he escapes into the swamp, which is not a safe place to go into. Yeah, and so there is always the opportunity. like. There is always the chance that he, uh, you know, got caught in a bog and his he body. He might have died out there, he but he might also there. be at this premiere right now. <laughs> you never look so- beside you. Is there another hand in your popcorn bucket? <laughs> it's a bad man's hand. <laughs> it's a bad man's hand. That is such a cool move, though. Yeah, it is. I love it's the great. idea that the, like the person in the theater could be the Phantom. Right? Did you know that they played this movie for free every year in Texarkana? Do they? They do. They still do. See, also from the 2014 uh, remake, they exactly. play it like every summer or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like that's that's what I one oh, of the things I want to go like. to a drive-in in Texas. By the way, side note, wouldn't that be fun? That sounds great. Yeah, I think we should do it. I think that's our new goal. This is the year we're doing it. Drive-in in Texas. We saw uh, Three from Hell in Texas. Not at a drive-in. Not at a drive-in at a regular theater. They had one of those photo things though, where you take photos. A photo booth. Photo booth. Yeah. Yes, we got four photos for the price of four photos. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, realistically, we got four photos for the price of 12 photos. Let's be real. Photo booths aren't cheap. It's true. It's worth it, though. You're buying memories. They're keeping the film industry alive, John. (laughs) (laughs) Can't shit on that. Uh, It's a perfectly good bookmark I have now. Uh, So one last thing I wanted to mention. I basically just wanted to give us props for pairing these two films together because not only were the killers never caught, but they also had survivors from each of their attack nights. Oh, good, good point. Yeah, which kind of, I guess, raids speculation and the suspect pinpointing. I just thought that was kind of an interesting mirroring between the two cases. Yeah, and I'm going to give props to Tyler Liston, who told us that this was a better pairing than Zodiac and Manhunter, which is what I originally planned. Thanks, Tyler. So ratings. 
Yeah. How you gonna rate <sighs> the town that dreaded sundown? So I think I'm gonna give it a two and a half out of four. Okay. I'm giving it. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna keep it like middle of the road, just because it's. It's a little like I don't know, plotless. <laughs> uh, apart from the dates that appear on the screen every three weeks or so the cops are a little weird and bumbly we don't get any suspects we don't get any of the actual cop element of the story it's basically yeah. just a sensationalist delivery to keep kids up at night but it's also really kooky and fun and then it gets really dark like it's it's just this big conflicting potpourri and it that's kind of my brand so two and a half out of four yeah I'm, I'm giving it a two out of four because uh don't love the humor in it it just it just feels weird it's i i can't i get whiplash trying to snap back into focus <laughs> like after a kill sequence or after a big comedic sequence uh, I do love how those dark nighttime sequences are shot. I think it's they're so fucking good. Yeah, and there's some really, really fun good. stuff. Like we never touched on this. So like after we see the girl being, st- I'm not sure if it's the tr- trombone killer or the girl before that where she's tied against the tree, but we like zoom in on the blood dripping down her oh, neck, and yeah. you're just like, whoa. Or the like, I hello I, 1976. <laughs> look at you. <laughs> For me too, it the. The girl at the beginning of the movie who's crawling her way through the woods up to the road. Like, I, I just love how that looks. It's really hopeless and pathetic, but it's nice that she makes it out alive. Um, but it looks Our really compliments good. are so weird. Like, it looked so hopeless. Yeah, I mean, like, if it were a Giallo film, it'd be okay, you know? Like, we'd be fine with it. I'm not gonna lie. The no, way I just this... think our adjectives are pretty great. Uh, but let us know what you thought about Zodiac and the town that dreaded sundown. You can tweet at us at NOFS podcast. You can find us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS and on Reddit at reddit.com slash R slash nightmare on film street. Let us know which of the two movies you like best and you know, your, your, your personal theories on who the killers are. Uh, if they're still out there today. Sparkplug did it. <laughs> yeah, oh, poor Sparkplug. But of course, Nightmare on Film Street is listener supported by fiends like yourself. Head over to patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street to check out hours of bonus content available to you as a monthly supporter of the show. Until next time, I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay, Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive. But we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends.